You know, in that debate, I didn't say anything extraordinary. I didn't say anything novel or innovative. I just spoke what I saw in the scriptures. Uh, I read from Christ's words, St. Paul. I, I went back to Aquinas. I went back to the Book of Common Prayer and the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I just used the material that was already at hand and just mirrored it, parroted it. So nothing new, nothing, nothing in that was me. Um, so it cut, the fact that so many people have seen it as extraordinary, as uh, standing out, actually saddens me because it tells me that people aren't hearing the truth often enough. This should be the stuff that you're hearing in church every single Sunday. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. I am very excited today to have on the show Father Calvin Robinson. He is a British minister, political commentator, writer, speaker, and broadcaster since 2022. He's also been a deacon in the Free Church of England. He is a regular contributor on multiple different news outlets and podcasts, and he has his own show on GBN that you can catch weekly. Father Calvin, thanks so much for being with me today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Well, uh, it's it's my pleasure. Uh, you happen to be one of the uh, most liked uh, posts that I've ever had on on Instagram. You were kind enough to comment down below in the in the comment section of that post. But uh, really, you get all the the praise for that because I first came onto who you were uh, based upon your Oxford Union. Uh, debate, and I imagine there's probably many uh, others like me in that scenario who were unaware of you until that time. But that uh, debate absolutely exploded for obvious reasons because you spoke with such authority and with such uh, a grace, I would say, on the subject of gay marriage and uh, what the church should think about that issue and how we should respond to that issue. So uh, obviously that, that kind of sparks the background for our conversation today. It is my hope that through the conversation that we'll be able to try to create a charitable but um, truthful um, uh, maybe addendum to that, to that speech to try to help people maybe get the underpinnings of what Christians actually believe love is and why it is so important that we define that appropriately. So uh, essentially, we'll try to answer the question, what is love uh, today through, through our conversation. Uh, before we get to that, though, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you, because anybody who saw that debate and saw what you had to say, um, I, I think would be intrigued to know the, the passion and the fervor that you have, not only for this issue, but for Christ and, and where that comes from. So let's go a little bit back in your past and tell me kind of a little bit about yourself. Predominantly, when did you feel the call and how did you feel the call to get into um, full-time ministry? Well, big question. Uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, for all the credit you just gave me, but it's not due to me, it's due to him. All praise and glory be to God. Uh, I was trying to be his vessel at that Oxford Union debate. And at the time I didn't think I succeeded, but looking back retrospectively, it, it looks like I, I, he used me in, in certain ways to reach certain people. Uh, so I'm very thankful mm -hmm. for that. Uh, as for my background, um, I grew up in the Midlands in um, Nottingham, Robin Hood country in, in Nottinghamshire. And we were nominally Christian growing up. But I really and truly found Christ when I became a school teacher and I worked in Church of England schools, which tend to be quite uh, lukewarm in the faith. But the one that I first worked in, it started the week in church on a Monday morning. Everyone was in church 
and it just set all the pupils up for the week but also us teachers as well it really prepared us put us in the right mindset uh, you know um amdg it was kind of everything we're doing here we're doing for the greater glory of christ and i think that's how life should be i think it's, it's a fantastic way to start the week so i started going to church on a sunday as well and i this is when i first encountered christ in the eucharist when we are closest to christ um i, I at some point i realized that I needed to know more about this. I needed to know everything there was to know about this, the theology behind it, the liturgy behind it. What did it mean? Why was it so powerful? Why did it hit me? And after, you know, I, I did um, catechesis. I went to classes in the church and I started reading books and I started speaking to my priest. And eventually I, we, we came to the, the conclusion through discernment that I was being called to um, sacramental ministry and that I needed to center my entire life around the Eucharist, as we all should. Yeah. And so uh, I'm curious, too, about that. Um, so maybe a little bit of background, too, about what's going on with the Church of England, because you speak on this issue, and you said something in the Oxford Union debate that I thought was very interesting, and um, a lot of Americans um, that may be listening to this may not be aware of what's going on with the Church of Church of England. So I'm curious about, too, what caused you to take such a firm stance on this issue when it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Church of England is very, I wouldn't even say lukewarm on this issue, but they've actually, um, they've gone retroactively back to, or maybe, <laughs> maybe progressively to a cultural standard on this issue, more so than a biblical standard on this issue, because correct me if I'm wrong, the Church of England essentially has this dichotomous view that they bless gay marriage, but you can't get married in their churches. Is that kind of what, what they're saying now? Yeah, it's, they're playing trickery with the language. So it's illegal to get married in a church for obvious reasons. Uh, I'm talking about same-sex marriage here, because it's no, there's no such thing. Marriage in a Christian context means between one man and one woman. It's heterosexual, it's monogamous. That's it. That's the meaning of the word. Um, in secular society, the, the meaning of the word has changed because the conservative government pushed through uh, what they called equal marriage, meaning that two men or two women can also get married. But that's not how marriage has been perceived for the last, well, three, four, five, six millennia. Um, yeah. So the church cannot change that because it's church doctrine, it's church teaching as it has always been. However, the Church of England is trying to get around this by saying, "Well, we won't bless, we won't bless the marriage. We'll bless the individuals within the marriage," and that's that's sly, if if anything. And essentially, they're saying we, we can bless same-sex relationships, some of which will be sexual in nature. Now, that's asking God to bless something He has called abhorrent, and that's a strong word, but it means it's out of God's order. It's disorderly it's sinful and therefore he won't bless it so we can't ask him to bless it that's wrong of us it's wrong of the church but I, you know I, i've seen more and more of this as i so the bubble that i exist in within the church of england is the anglo-catholic bubble which tends to be more catholic as in sticks to the teaching of the church fathers and is isn't as liberal usually on these issues however the church big c the church of england i've seen since I've been more and more involved, that they're just disregarding the scriptures, disregarding tradition in order to appease the woke masses, to, to, to appear more liberal, progressive, and to be seen as a good thing by society rather than good in the eyes of God. I have a question about this. Do you think that this is 
it's obviously is doctrinal because everything that is secular really is sacred at the end of the day. And obviously you could um, explain that further, but suffice to say, certainly the way in which we view marriage, uh, the Bible has something to say about that. So do you think that this is merely the church succumbing to the pressure of the world? Or do you think that this is a uh, deceptive, and maybe they don't see it as this, but I do, a deceptive strategy in which to reach the world. So they say, well, we're trying to, you know, be in the world, but not of yeah. the world. So we're going to come to the world a little bit and, uh, and allow ourselves to redefine some things for the sake of reaching people for Christ. Yeah, they're two-faced. So on the one hand, they will say that's what the reason is. They'll say, look, we need to reach people where they are. This is where people are, are is right now. This is what people believe in. So we need to be there with them. But the truth behind the matter is that they want to leave behind a perfectly embalmed liberal corpse. They know the Church of England is dying and they want to, if they're going to see it out, they want to see it out and bury it well. They want it to be remembered well. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah. I know this is a big question too, because I think, and you are probably aware of this, I think we are struggling with the same things within the realm of the evangelical church. Uh, for the longest time, we have been more concerned uh, seemingly with being relevant than actually being biblical. And that, that, goal has ultimately allowed us to, first of all, in a soft kind of way, a soft progressive way, change our language slowly but surely to match the world. And then it has slowly but surely changed what we actually believe on some pretty core issues and then allowed us, if nothing else, to just be really, really silent on things that are deeply important. But, uh, but I'm still curious about why you think that we are succumbing to this delusion, if you will, or if we're you might call it why we're succumbing to this external pressure to be like like the world. What do you think that force is ultimately that's that's causing us to rethink what the church has believed for thousands of years? First of all, I think, I think that's a great shame because the word evangelical used to be synonymous with conservative. You used to always be able to count yeah. on the evangelicals to stick to scriptures. And if even they're going liberal, that's a great shame. But it's not a case of the evangelicals losing the way or the Catholics losing the way. It's a case of the West losing its way. If we look at where people are strongest in their faith, it's in the African continent, it's in Southeast Asia, it's in the global South. You know, I was at GAFCON conference last month where the primates that represent 85% of the Anglican communion were together in their orthodoxy, uh, asking the Church of England and the leaders within to repent. So there is still firm Christian Orthodox faith around the world. It's just the West where we're losing it. And of course, you ask why. I, I suppose wherever some, the faith is stronger for a period of time, it's going to be a target, right? So for the devil, like the, the, the church in the West has been a target for a long time because think about Great Britain, you know, the British Empire spread the gospel around the world. All these places that I'm talking about where it's still strong, that's because the Brit, mostly because yeah. the Brits sent it there. Uh, and now it seems we need to ask them to return the gospel because we've lost it. But wherever the faith is strong, we will become a target for the devil. And it's about maintaining our faith and, and riding through that and, and not failing at the, at the first humble, at the first stumble or the first hurdle. <laughs> There's no word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And, and I can't help but wonder if there isn't a, because I think it, it may be easy for us as Christians to um, quickly move to the spiritual, but I also think that it's important for us not to back away from the fact that there is evil in the world and there is a demonic influence that has pretty much worked uh, the same way through, throughout time and memoriam. But, um, but I also think there's an ideology that is explicitly 
satanic uh, underneath all of it, and and it is and it is Marxism. And I almost hesitate to say that because um, the the progressive and the person on the left and the person who is in the woke uh, ideology camp uh, will immediately say, okay, well, you're doing what Christians have done for years, and you're calling everything the devil, and you're calling everything Marx, 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 and you're seeing Marxism where it doesn't necessarily need to be. But it's hard for me not to see that when I understand that ultimately the, the program of Marx underneath everything was deconstruction, and one of the things that he was avowedly for was the deconstruction of religion and the deconstruction of Christianity as an anti Semite and somebody who claimed to be a, uh, a Satanist. So I can't help but realize, okay, well, maybe um, in a roundabout way, even if it is just his, not his teaching in particular, but at least his ideas evolving into the present and allowing them to proliferate institutionally in things like the academy and in things like the church. I think it becomes incumbent upon us to become aware of some of the forces that are putting pressure upon the church, lest we just stand back and say, why is this happening? Why do we find that evangelical pastors are less um, likely to take a stand on the issue of homosexual marriage or stand up against pride issues that are marching down the streets of their cities and all of that thing. So I'm curious what you think about that and, and if we do a disservice to ourselves perhaps by, by, by naming and claiming, as it were, uh, Marxism as a, as a force behind some of this. We have to give it a name. It doesn't matter if the name is Marxism or if the, the name is satanic or demonic. It doesn't really matter because the force is the same. It's exactly the same. So yeah. In order for us to recognize God, we have to move beyond the earthly to the spiritual, to the heavenly, right? We have to look towards the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness. That's how we recognize God. And this movement, whatever you want to call it, has been about undermining those transcendentals. The truth is undermined every day when we're told, actually, there aren't just two sexes. There are 99, and, and you can transition from one to the other. Or you, can, you don't even have to transition. You can just change your mind and decide whatever you are. A man can become a woman. A boy can become a girl. Or that everyone, is, everyone that happens to be white is racist, and that's something that they cannot uh, at any time repent for. They cannot seek forgiveness for um, because it's just a, an inherited sin that they are like replacing original sin you know all of this is breaking down our understanding of truth and we, and we see this around us all the time every day we see that lies are being painted as truth and truth painted as lies good as evil evil as good is scriptural same for beauty this whole movement has undermined our perspective of what is beautiful look around you in the world today mm. um from our buildings that used to be built in order to exemplify our love of god's creation now it's all about the individual. It's all about the architect getting the credit rather than God. And this is why everything is ugly. It's all steel. It's all glass. It's all concrete. Nothing's designed to be beautiful because it's not designed to point upwards to God. It's designed to point downwards to ourselves. So beauty is being undermined. Yeah. And then goodness. The fact that what we're told is good is no longer good. And we're actually, instead of doing good, instead of being good, instead of being called to live Christ-like lives, to become saints, we are actually told we just need to virtue signal. We just need to put that rainbow flag in our bio, in our avatar pick. We need to say, yes, we are for pride, for, you know, celebrate sin. Or we have to say, yes, put the black square in our Instagram for Black Lives Matter um, because it's no longer about all life matter mattering. It's not about the sanctity of life. It's about a particular demographic that we can single out and therefore virtue signal and make ourselves feel good. It's about appearing good or feeling good rather than being good. So truth, beauty, and goodness have all been undermined. It's all Marxism. It's all satanic. It's all demonic. Yeah. 
And if there's more a broad term, if even if people don't like that idea, there, I think there is a more broad term, and it's called secularism. And if you wonder why we have uh, a age in which it is taboo to talk about God openly, but to whip the bare naked bottom of a man publicly is totally acceptable, well, then uh, that could be one of the reasons why, because we've pushed Christianity into the closet and then released all sorts of things from the closet that that shouldn't have ever been in the first place. But I am still curious about this one thing, just kind of going back to you personally, because it is a, I understand in some ways why pastors in my realm of kind of the Protestant evangelical movement um, feel the pressure that they do. Um, maybe we'll get to talk about the chosen here in a moment and kind of um, the controversy that took place with with them, which which I hope to because I think it's very in, important mm-hmm. to talk about. But but I understand the pressure that we are feeling to accept sin and to call it uh, to call darkness light. Um, but you didn't do that when you stood up, um, even standing up in some ways against your own denomination and some of the ways that they are moving. So. While I think I might know the answer to this question, I'm curious, what is it in you that caused you not to succumb to that pressure? I'm a Christian. (laughs) We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to proclaim the gospel. We're called to speak the truth. Uh, We're not called to fit in and make people feel comfortable. We're not called to be nice. We're not even called to be meek and mild. There are so many misconceptions around what it means to be Christian. It means to have faith in God. It means to repent of our sins and have faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins and resurrected to offer us salvation. It is as simple as that. Anyone that overcomplicates it is doing the devil's work. And we're all called to do this. We're all called to pick up our crosses, bear our suffering. We're all called to follow him and live a life by his example. And I don't understand why people can't do that, to be honest with you. Yes, we, we are all fallen, and we're all susceptible to sin, and we all fall every now and then, but we get back up, we repent, and we follow him again. Yeah, I have some psychological reasons why, but then it would overcomplicate things. But I, I think social media has something to do with it. I think social acceptance has become a god mm-hmm. in our era. And I think that we really deeply care too much about how we are perceived in the world. I've said this often, and I've felt it myself as a pastor, that perhaps one of the greatest golden calves on a Sunday morning or whenever you have church is the fear of being misperceived, that your stance on an issue like homosexual marriage might be misperceived as intolerance or hate or, or whatnot. And I will give it to the left. They have done a great job of convincing Christians that the moment you speak about this issue, you become judgmental. Um, rather than just a discerning Christian. So they've convinced large swaths of certainly American Christians that, uh, that to actually deign to speak a biblical utterance about um, the evils of homosexual marriage or homosexuality in general uh, makes you a bigot. Um, so suffice to say, I, I think that what we have to do is a reverse campaign. I heard uh, James Lindsay talking about this the other day. Um, and although an atheist, I've also heard other Christians m- mimic this same idea, which is that the left has created, in the left in America especially, and in the Western world, has created a program of slow but sure gradual change, and we have to do the same, that we have to be willing to play the long game. We have to be willing to slowly but surely um, push back against the redefinition of words and all of that. And so in America right now, we're asking the question, what is a woman? I don't know if you're familiar with oh, the yeah. Daily Wire yeah. and Matt Walsh great and those guys, but... Um, those great documentaries, fantastic. Yeah, it's great. 
Um, and and it's it's really sweeping the uh, certainly our nation, yours, and perhaps the globe. Uh, but uh, but they ask of the question, what is a woman? And so there's a movement towards that um, that's really making an impact in the trans movement. And I think more broadly, if we're going to make an impact in the pride movement, since it is Pride Month, um, I think there is a more broad and important question that also needs to be asked, and that is, what is love? And I think that ultimately that's what your Oxford Union debate was was kind of circling um, mm. around is helping us understand truly what love is, because that is a word that has been butchered, maligned, redefined, and totally made useless, along with the word marriage, by the way. Um, it's still holy and it's still sacred. So regardless of what people try to do against it, it is still what it is. It is God's institution. But at least in our perception of the word, it's it's been maligned. But um, but love is definitely one of those things, as 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 you also pointed out, beauty is. But I, I keep on thinking that it comes back to this ultimate of virtues of us redefining what love actually is in the present. Um, and so I'm curious what you would what you would say in light of of especially this statement. You said that we are defining love, in a sense, as the bride marrying itself. Now, I thought that was a, a stunning statement in your speech at, at the Oxford Union debate, that we've come to this understanding of, of marriage and love that is self-focused. So could you, could you kind of tell me what you meant by that, by the, by the bride marrying itself? And of course, you're using Christian language, but... Uh, but I also thought, think that it's something that's relevant to people who are sure, not Sure, I will do. But you just mentioned a few things that I want to come back on. Um, um, first of all, James Lindsay, sure. we need to pray for him. This is a prime example of, of when people are doing good work, they become a target for the devil. He's led people a long way in this cultural war, but he's failing to see the spiritual elements of this. Uh, it is a spiritual war, this cultural war. And he's starting sure. to attack Christians. And I think there's something beyond that happening, that we need to pray for him, that he needs, he needs to find Jesus Christ and he needs to see the bigger picture. Um, you mentioned that it's Pride yeah. Month. It's not Pride Month. The month of June is not Pride Month. Let's not concede to the liturgical calendar of the secularists or the, or the demons. It is June, which I would say is the month that we celebrate the sacred heart of Jesus Christ. And to get to your final question of love, what does it mean when the, when the church is marrying the church? It means that Christ gave us an example of marriage in that he, when he instituted his church, he entered a relationship with us. He is the bridegroom and we as the church are the bride. The church is the bride, but we are the church. So we enter that loving relationship with him. The moment the bride tries to marry the bride, the moment we have a same-sex marriage, we're taking Christ out of the picture. We're saying we don't need to marry you. We can marry ourselves. And that it comes back down to the idol of making gods of ourselves, which is actually all the way back to Genesis. If we want to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, the serpent is whispering in our ears saying, did God really say that? And we're saying, we can't be gods ourselves. That's exactly what's happening mm -hmm. with gay marriage. It's taking God out of the situation. It's saying we don't need to follow his rules. We don't need to follow his boundaries because we know better. We are better. We are gods. Mm. Yeah, I think that's interesting, too, because I think Romans 1 essentially points out this, this same idea that you go from worshiping um, idols and false worship, and then Paul starts talking about homosexuality, and you think to yourself, well, what does idolatry and homosexuality have to do with each other? Well, if you kind of 
strip those things down, you realize that idolatry is the worship, sure, of a carved image, but really more importantly, it is the worship of self, because you've carved an image that you have created yourself. So in other words, you've created a self-effigy to, to worship, and homosexuality is the worship of self in that you are having sex with someone of the same same uh, biological sex as you. And so it is another form of the worship of self. And so I think it's, I, I think that's very striking. I think that's really important that we understand the difference between self-love and, um, and authentic love. So what, what would you say? And I know this is a loaded question, but if I were to ask you the question, what is love? How would you define love? A willing the good of the other. Love is self-sacrificial. Love is self-denying. Love is about the other person. And we know this because this is how God shows us what love is. He, he sacrifices his only begotten son for us because he loves us. He, he gives us his son knowing what, we, knowing what we will do to him because he loves us so unconditionally. Like it's, it's not about us. When we, when we often see today people are going through divorce or go through struggles in their relationship, it comes down to it's not what I expected or it's harder work than I thought it was going to be or I'm not, I'm not getting what I want out of this rather than so it's always pointing outwards. It's just saying, what can I do to make this relationship work? What can I do to contribute better? How am I pulling this relationship down? And the focus on the self is actually is a selfish desire, this, this modern concept of love. And mostly when I hear arguments about gay marriage uh, in terms of love, it's always, it always comes down to lust, desire, the devices of our own hearts. It's, it's not about fulfilling our calling. It's not about living a godly life. And, and we know from the scriptures that not everyone is called to marriage. Not everyone is called to start a family. Yeah. But there's a holiness in singleness, you know, living a chaste life, uh, abstaining from sex and just living a life in worship of God is the most holy thing one could do if one feels called to it. I, I, have, a, I have a question for you about this, about like the, the self-love that yeah. we're calling love today. Um, I'd love to hear what you think about this. I was thinking about our conversation today and I was thinking about how we have become very familiar in the present with self-identity. Mm and how impossible it actually is to self-identify. The only being in existence that can self-identify is God. He's the only one that can identify himself, but we actually only referentially yeah. identify. So I am a husband because I have a wife. I am a father because yeah. I have kids. So I am who I am based upon my responsibilities and my duties to, to yeah. the other. And so I think that way, and I believe that's Aquinas uh, there, if I'm not mistaken, that willing the good of the other is what yes. actual love is. So I think that's, that's always so good back to Aquinas um, in terms of how we actually express what love yeah, is. And, yeah, is. and God is the big I am. You're right in that he is the I am and we are not. So therefore, uh, and a lot of this actually comes down to this modernism of, of trying to fulfill one's self and trying to find one's true self. But that's the, the trap because we don't have a true self. We can't fulfill ourselves. We, can't, we can look at Christ in his kenosis, in his emptying of himself to be filled with the, the divine will of God. That is what we should be looking at. We should be looking at following him in his example. The moment we try and chase our own paths, again, we're making idols of ourselves and gods of ourselves because we're trying to do something that only he can do. And it's, it's a misunderstanding of what it means to be a human being. Yeah. I, I, if I were to answer the question myself, I've thought a lot about this, especially in light of our conversation, what is love? I would say, uh, well, I know this. Love is not a feeling. You know, we, we, we say, I love my dog. 
or I love these shoes. And then we say, well, I love my wife. Well, certainly, hopefully you mean different things from I love my dog and yeah. I love my wife. There's very different ideas there. Um, but ultimately, I know this. Love is not just a feeling. Love is a person. If we're going to get back to understanding what love is, we have to get back to the person who actually created it and let him define mm -hmm. it for us. And he said uh, in his word, at least through one of his apostles, he said, God is love. Uh, now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, said something I think is very simple but very brilliant, too. He said, the Bible doesn't say love is God. It says God mm. is love. So that means however we define love, we have to allow it to be defined within the confines of who yeah. God is. So we can't self-identify love. We can't go out and define love any arbitrary way yeah. that we wish to. But if we're going to say what love is, it has to fit within the definition of who God is. So in other words, uh, God has the right to Absolutely. define it, not and us. Absolutely, for everything. But I think you used a good example there, as in I love my shoes, I love my phone, I also love my wife. That word is actually enjoy. I enjoy my shoes, I enjoy my phone, I enjoy my wife. And when you start looking at people in that, in terms of what enjoyment or pleasure or div, uh, you get from them, you look at the dev devices and desires of your own heart again. It's about your personal, what you get from it. Whereas a, a true love for your wife would be a commitment to your wife. It's what you give to them rather than what you get from them. And that's the, that's the key because God is an ever-loving relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And he's inviting us into that loving relationship. That's what love is. He's saying, come here, join me. I love you. Will you love me back? It's not about what you can get from it. It's about what you can give to it. Mm. That's so good. And, and uh, by the way, this, this brings to mind the, the uh, kind of at least a chronological idea of what love has been um, throughout the ages. Uh, so I was looking at Plato's understanding of love, and he calls love admiration. I was looking at Kierkegaard, and he said, no, it can't just be admiration because then you're only loving the things that you like, and God teaches us to, to even love those who are evil. And so Kierkegaard essentially says love is grace. And then C.S. Lewis comes along and, and reminds us of the four names of love, the different kinds of love, and how we often kind of intermix those and, and throw those around in a different way. And suffice to say, all of that reminds me that um, some great understanding of love has taken place in the past, and it's quickly gone away to a self-determination of what, what love is. So there's been a cultural program to, to define love that I think has been very... Um, aggressive, I guess I'll say. I don't know what, what the other adge uh, um, mm. adjective may be. But um, I also think we need to go beyond the esoteric of what love is to how can we help people define it? How do we in a real world situation actually communicate love to a culture that is so steeped in secularism that they no longer have a grasp outside of love other than this kind of self-referencing, self-idealized yeah. love? So I, I want you to respond to that, but okay. then I have a because, more because it is self-referencing. You know, they say love is love, which is a tautology. It doesn't define anything. It just says it is what it is, and that means they're able to do anything with it. Yeah, so they yeah, can say you know, two men loving each other is is love. Three men loving each other is love. Anything is love within those bounds. But no, God sets the terms, as you rightly yeah. said, that we can't change them. Exactly the same with marriage. Marriage is uh, a commitment between one man and one woman joining together in one body, both spiritually and physically, uh, under God uh, for the purposes of raising a family, for the purposes of worshipping God, and for the purposes of the community, the good of the community. Now, that doesn't happen outside of those boundaries.
Yeah. So I'm curious what you think about this. So forgive me for a little bit of an explanation here, but I want to make sure that people understand that what I'm about to say seems very firmly rooted in Scripture. So Moses is speaking to God, and God tells him that the only way that Pharaoh is going to let my people go is under compulsion. So in other words, because this is such an immoral man, the only way he is going to reason, the only way you can reason with him is with this tension. And so, of course, we know the 10 plagues come. And then we also have to look not only at the 10 plagues, but also the use of Moses to apply some of this compulsion. So God uses the 10 plagues divinely, but he also uses his people to implement some of that compulsion. Now, I think you can go a little bit too far with this, but ultimately all I'm saying is just this, is that people need to feel the weight of their actions if they are going to truly change. So when I think about the cultural program that's redefined love for us in the present, I think that we also have to have a Christian cultural program to, to implement, to kind of redefine it in the way that it should be defined. So I'm curious what you think about how we should respond to some of the cultural forces that are out there. So for instance, um, just recently, The Chosen, the hit show about the life of Christ, there was a pride flag on the set of The Chosen, and without getting into whether or not you should allow your employees to put certain things up in their workspaces and all of that stuff. What I'd rather like to focus on is just the way in which the creator of The Chosen handled the, the controversy, which was to uh, explain the existence of the pride flag on his set, but not to talk about what the Bible actually says about it and what Christ actually says about it. So what do we need to do to actually re-engineer the program that's been used against the church to try to dismantle these definitions to the, so that we can make a difference. Because I do believe that we have to have an answer to society. Yeah. We cannot just say, well, we'll just keep this in our churches. Because the left did not just keep it in the, yeah. <laughs> in the academy. They, they are interested in impacting the culture. And I, don't, and I believe, too, that yeah, we absolutely. should as well as Christians. Um, I kind of ignored the chosen scandal just because it was so, it was such internal politics. And I thought, they're yeah. doing such good work. The show is doing such good work. Of course, it's a target, again, for the devil. Of course, it's going to be the elements that want sure. to take it down. Uh, however, in that example, the correct solution would be, this is what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. That would be an opportunity for teaching, an opportunity to say that this is what we believe as Christians and to put that forward. And then to perhaps um, have a quiet word disciplinary with the person who brought the flag on board. Because... For an outlet like that, they should be recruiting Christians. They should be recruiting people with the values of the show they're trying to produce, I think. Uh, but See, I even, I even somewhat disagree with that. But, but, but of course, we could um, discuss that. But I think the, that's a minor issue compared to the, what you, to the previous thing that you said, which is that we, I believe, in our cultural moment, have, have an obligation as Christians to push back. Yeah. And this is where the compulsion comes in, to push back against the definition of marriage that has been foisted yeah. upon the church, rather than to do what the Church of England is doing, which is to give into and succumb to a secular definition. Yeah, absolutely. But... Uh, on, the on the second point, it's impossible. It's impossible to recruit only people with your values. So you have to share your values and you have to be explicit with your values and what, and what they are. Yes. Uh, yeah, 100%. I, and so that one of the answers for us here in America, and I'm curious maybe if for you guys too, one of the answers for us has been boycotts um, based upon Christian values of businesses who desire to especially foist gender ideology yeah. on the on children or to explicitly um uh celebrate june as, as it's been great to see the boycott of target which was pushing 
evil, quite frankly, um, trans stuff onto children. That's, that's wicked. Um, but this is one of the reasons I ignored the chosen thing because I thought it's, it's not the production, it's not the um, documentary, it's not the program itself, it's not the team. It's, it's just an employee with um, the wrong politics, and you can't cancel on a whole, a whole good thing because of one crooked employee, uh, which was very different to Target, which was clearly institutional. They were pushing this stuff on children, so we do have to be careful in our reaction to this stuff. But of course, we should push back as hard as we, as hard as we can when we can. So do you believe that there's maybe a scriptural or, or a Christian basis for boycott? Well, I suppose you could say that uh, we're rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, so leave Target to the people that support Target, and we won't shop there as Christians. But I also think the West was built on Christian principles. And if we want the West to survive, and I don't even know if it's possible at this point, but if we do, we have to remember those Christian principles. We have to live by them. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the things that that I've, I'm curious too is because we have very different um, Christian kind of culture, not only between uh, England and and America, but also in terms of you being an Anglican minister and me being a Protestant evangelical minister. I mean, in the back, no no one's ever curious about this on my show, but in the back, I've got a page of. Uh, Martin Luther's um, uh, Gutenberg Bible, uh, and but it has less to do with Martin Luther and more to do with the prolifer- pro- proliferation yeah. of the Word of God. Um, but uh, but suffice to say, I thought it was a little bit of a symbol of maybe the differences in terms of our Christian background. But you've also prolifically written about Catholics and Protestants, and um, I would assume Anglicans yeah. in that as well, and um, how if I guess maybe not how, but if there is a way to for us to, to, to once again create a sense of, of unity since we are so divided on, on many issues. Um, and I'm curious what you think about that. Is, is perhaps a solution to some of this also the Christian church kind of universally taking a stand on these Absolutely. Issues? We have to come together on the things that unite us, and that is essentially Christ. We have to be centered on Christ. And for so long we've been centered on our differences, and that's kind of torn us apart as Christians. We, we agree on far more than we disagree on. And right now, the, the war is not between evangelical Protestants and, and Catholics. It's between Orthodox and heterodox. It's between those who believe in the principles of the faith, such as marriages between one man and one woman, and those who don't, such as those who believe that in same-sex marriage. Um, and that's with everything that's going on around us. So we have to come together. We can sort out the, the finer details later, but this is too big and too important mm-hmm. not to. I'm sick and tired of Protestants telling yeah. me Catholics aren't Christian and, and Catholics telling me that Protestants aren't saved because they all sound very Calvinist and they all sound very arrogant, to be honest. There's a lack of charity <laughs> and humility. That, that will make uh, people like David Platt and Matt Chandler in America very happy to hear that uh, all Catholics and Protestants have actually just been <laughs> reformed all along. Uh, but they probably believe that anyway. Um, but suffice to say, yeah, I think that's so important. I, I, you know, there is an element of ignorance in terms of what the other side believes. Um, uh, for instance, like 
there there are many things that you could say about the Jesuit movement, but um, in terms of what they did in light of the Protestant Reformation, um, is there's certainly some admirable things that you can look at with what the Jesuits did to return to Scripture, to return to Christ in light of what was going on with the Catholic Church and needed reforms. So there's a uh, there's a kind of parallel reformation within the Catholic Church that even most Protestants don't even know about in terms of where what that other side believes. But I think the more broad point there is just is just interesting because I see it happening more and more all the time. Um, for instance, I see comedians that I would typically never listen to because they were so leftist, um, <laughs> usually finding themselves slowly but surely pushed to the right because of how leftward the left is getting. And then people like Bill Maher, I don't know if you kept up with things that he said in his show and that kind of stuff. And it's just odd that I find myself the guy that did a farcical, ridiculous documentary called Ir Irreligious to make fun of Christians, that now he's like a voice of common sense um, to fellow Christians just because of how radical things have gotten. And so I, I, all that to say this, that the polarization of our time, a lot of people are so icky about it, but I actually think it serves a good purpose, at least in this way, is that it helps us define the issues that are really, really important because there is so much mm -hmm. at stake right now, and that it also may be able to push some of us who had been separated before on these issues a little bit closer. But actually, together. at this point, the ignorance is chosen because the, the misconceptions that led to the Reformation it is willful. willful. The misconceptions that led to the Reformation, we've, we've, we've worked through them. We've had, what, nearly 600 years since then. So we know the answers to those questions. So if people are still living in that time, it is willful. They're choosing to stay in that time. And that's ignorance. That doesn't help uh, the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe one other thing kind of pushing back to, to love, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, too. And I think this will be beneficial pe to people who listen, because there's, I think there's a large misconception about this. There is this idea that we're going to declare our church as a safe space for homosexuals and the trans community. And during Pride Month, we're going to welcome you into our church. And then even this paradigm, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's very leftist in nature. But this... Um, should we be welcoming, affirming, and celebrating, and then kind of separating the church based upon those three ideas. And even I have a problem with all of them. I think there's no doubt that we should be welcoming. Uh, we should love the sinner and, and hate the sin, you know, the old saying. But, uh, but the whole paradigm is messed up in the first place because it's a paradigm that was handed to us by the world that we've just accepted. Because the reality is, is that what our goal is, is not to make sure that people feel welcome in our church as much as it is our obligation to declare the truth of God's word. And I think this is where we're missing it by and large. Um, on my show this just this past Thursday, I showed a pastor who was getting his signs defaced um, that said safe space, and it had a trans flag and a pride flag on it. Um, and I'm assuming that this was an evangelical pastor, by the way. Um, and he was getting his signs defaced, and I believe it was probably not the trans community that was doing it, but actually people in his community that hated the fact that he was calling his church mm -hmm. a safe space for trans people. And his sentiment was, well, what you need to do is you just need to come in and realize how loving we are and all that kind of stuff. And, and all of that's fine, and I think it's good-natured, but I think it absolutely misses the point. Because the moment you actually start declaring what the Word of God says about the trans movement and the homosexual movement— by according to the people you're trying to reach, you are no longer a safe zone because they only want to be affirmed and celebrated in their decision-making. To me, that's just a total ig willful ignorance, as you said, on the part of the Christian 
to not pay attention to what is going on in the world. Because we have moved past the place where we want the a right to do what we want in the privacy of our own bedroom. And we are far past that now and deeply into celebrate yeah. or else. And the trans community doesn't need a safe space. The LGBTQ plus 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 community doesn't need a safe space because they are the most celebrated community in the Western society. Everywhere you go, there's a pride flag this month. It's ridiculous that they'd need somewhere safe to be. And, but the church isn't supposed so to be true, safe. Yeah. The, first, yeah. the church is somewhere to experience truth, beauty, and goodness. The church is somewhere to link yourself with the knowledge that has been revealed through the scriptures. It's to, to come to know mm -hmm. Christ. And you're quite right that the truth of the scripture will turn people off. It won't be safe to them to hear. But I don't think these people that say, come in and we're inclusive, we're safe. I don't think those people will be preaching the truth. They'll be skirting around it because they don't want to cause offense. Yeah. Well, the truth is offensive. Sorry. Yeah, as it should be. It should be dangerous. I'm reminded of, again, C.S. Lewis and this quote from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe where um, one of the girls, I forget which one it is, but one of the girls wants to see Aslan and she's speaking to Mr. Beaver and says, um, uh, a lion? Ooh, that doesn't sound safe. And Mr. Beaver responds and says, safe? Who said anything about being safe? He's the lion. He's not supposed to be safe. So to me, all that is is a... a a symbol of the fact that not only have we redefined love, more importantly, we've redefined who Jesus is to, to be this sanitized, anodyne um, figure in history that would absolutely pat you on the back for everything that you ever do. Um, and, and, and so it, there's this reinterpretation of Jesus is through the lens of secularism. And I guess there's a question in the midst of that, and, and it's, how do we convince people that the Jesus that you know is vastly different than the Jesus of Scripture? Well, because we have to tell people to come and learn about Jesus. Everyone just assumes they know him. Everyone assumes that they, they've got this imaginary friend in their head that's there to love them through by affirming them. And we have to teach them what love means, that it's not affirming them in their sin, and it's actually encouraging them to repent of their sins and to come to know Christ, the person, as revealed to us through the Scriptures in the faith as once delivered through the saints. And that's why we're there as ministers, to teach and to let them know who he is. And people that want to say, oh, I don't need to go to church to know Jesus, I know. Like, then they're making up their own gods. Again, it's their own idols. You can't know Christ without the church. Yeah, hopefully we're seeing, too, the repercussions of this kind of thing. Because throughout this conversation, I've thought to myself, boy, you better believe it's important how you define love. So I want to talk about that for a moment. Is Why is it so important that we get love right? Because one of the things just kind of, maybe this is an extreme example, but I think it's a, an apropos example, is that if we don't define love right, then, then intimacy with another doesn't have a frame of reference. Because the left, the, the right has not done a good job. And let me not even talk left-right. Let me just talk about the Christian. The Christian has not done a good job of saying, well, if the homosexual um, can, can marry and... Um, homosexual love is actual real love, then exactly what, what is not love? Because what creates the, the mitigating principle against pedophilia? What creates the mitigating principle against polyamory? And so we think, you know, well, that's just ridiculous. Um, maybe it's simply because the cultural program has not gotten there yet, but it will because it is continually, increasingly shifting towards that. And there is no moral principle underneath any of the way that we define love in the present that would, that would 
keep yeah, of course. that if, from if it's abstract, it means nothing. And we are seeing that already. We are seeing that uh, polyamory is being pushed. At least here, we've had a few articles in the mainstream media recently. Of, oh, I'm in a quintuplet. I'm in a whatever relationship with three or four people. And it's okay because... Has, what's the Anglican church perspective the church on that? Church on it, I've, seen on the, that. I've seen it published in the mainstream media. And the same for pedophilia. We're seeing, yeah. are they actually pedophiles or are they just minor attracted persons? And it's painting it as a minority group that needs to yeah. be protected. That is wrong. It's abhorrent. It's evil. And unless we have um, a moral framework that we can point to, a compass that we can point to, why aren't these things acceptable? And people say, oh, I don't need religion to be moral. Why? Where do you get your morality from? Oh, I know what's good and bad. How? How do you know what's good and bad? You don't. You're making it up. Like, unless we follow what God has told us is good and what he's told us is evil, then we are making it up. And again, it comes back to idolatry. It comes back to making gods of ourselves. Everything in this conversation today has been linked to making gods of ourselves. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's all self-referencing because the moment God is out of the picture, what else do you have? You have nothing else to compare to um, except self. So um, the, the one way to actually get to the real definition of things is to get to the one who created it. Now, maybe one other thing about this. Um, wh what is love in, in this way, and why is it important that we, we get it right? Um, I think because love is the greatest of all virtues. Even faith, which is a great virtue, um, is, is found in love. This is why I think the Apostle Paul said, uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Because if you, um, if you do not believe in what you cannot see, you cannot truly love because you are actually loving something that is much bigger than aesthetic and outward beauty, right? It's that only, only fans does not describe what love looks like at all. So love is much deeper, it's more intimate, it's more personal, it's more emotional, it's, it's all these things far beyond sight. So if even faith is, is comprised within the, the all-encompassing virtue of love, I think it's vitally important that we understand love as the greatest of all virtues and love is this one thing that we can't just arbitrarily define. The idea that love is love, again, as you pointed out, is not only a secular definition and circular definition, but a completely... Uh, dangerous and, and idiotic definition because if there is anything that deserves forethought, if there's anything that deserves, deserves attentiveness and not just a pithy waving of the hand, it is making sure that we understand what love is. And I guess that's why I went through the trouble of explaining kind of what philosophers have talked about with love in the, in the past because there is a rich history in terms of how we actually define love and it's just totally forgotten in, in, in modernity. Um, but, but one last thing about this, in, um, in terms of love, why, why is it important that we define it right? Because I think that we don't know, we will never truly know who we are until we, we know what love is, because this is obviously a Christian idea, but, um, but it is a true idea because it is Christian too. Um, God makes woman out of something that was in the man, and he says that when the two come together, they will become one flesh. And so, in other words, they will become unified, and the man will receive that which was missing in his life um, once he finally finds that other partner. Once he truly understands love, in other words, that will be the thing that completes him. So, in a way, Jerry Maguire was correct. Um, the, there is a sense in which true love helps us understand who we truly are. So, you cannot be... The, the being that you were created to be without appropriate understanding of what love actually looks like. And just for clarification's sake, what I am not saying is I am not saying that celibacy isn't an actual calling or that you cannot 
be a whole human being without a woman. I am just saying that that love is an essential piece, even outside of, of marriage. Love is an essential piece of the identity of who we are as human beings and the way God created us. I would us. say that's, that's good, but I would say our whole purpose of being is to love God. And God said it is not good for man to be alone. So he made woman for man so that we had a helper to help us love God. And we get married in order to raise families so that we have children who we can teach to love God. So it's not, it's not so much about finding our partner to find someone to love. It's about loving him. And it's about finding a partner to help us love him and, and, and raising children to love him. It's all about loving him. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day. So I guess maybe as we kind of round out, round out our time today, even though um, this is a holy month in the, in the year of our Lord, and not necessarily Pride Month, we are um, faced all around us uh, with the, uh, the vestiges of this secular uh, celebration. And I'm curious how you would explain our role living in the world, but not being of the world. What is a, a good kind of paradigm for Christians as they think about how to interact with the Pride community? How do they be charitable yet truthful when speaking to people who have such emotional attachment with something that Christianity is so importantly I'd say we have to be prepared to be disliked. We have to speak the truth in love, gracefully. We have to say, I'm sorry, I'm not willing to have my speech compelled. I've always used this word. I'm always going to continue using this word. Uh, or, you know, I know you as, as my son, as my, as my nephew, as my grandson, whatever. I'm not going to see you as... A girl, I, I see you as a boy. I'm going to continue to call you a boy because I love you, and and God designed you that way. He created you in his in His image. It, it, so, so that would also include not using the gender pronouns of an individual. It, individual it that means that's a, that's a judgment people have to make. Um, but I would say I, I wouldn't be compelled to say something that I know is a lie. Um, but then where do we draw the line with that? Because using someone's name is different to using their pronouns. I think it's it's easier to say, look, I will call you by the name you have chosen than it is to say I will call you a boy or a girl um, when you're clearly not. So we, there are lines to be drawn there and we all have different compromises to make. But I would say try not to compromise on the truth. And I would say we also have a decision to be made about whether we are going to be um, – whether we're going to be – overt with this or not if we see pride flags um adorned on our church altar are we going to be christ in the temple with the whips are we going to tear those flags off the altar or are we just going to stop going to that church like mm -hmm. there are decisions we, we've got to make on on how we confront this but we have to confront it we can't ignore it and what about this what if the christian today doesn't know where their pastor stands on this issue. What would you say that suspect. is an indication of? Uh, it's one of the most prevalent issues of the day. So if we don't know what a pastor thinks about these issues, we should probably be asking them, but because it's, it's strange they haven't managed to talk about them so far. But a lot of pastors and priests are keeping their heads down because they don't want to play the woke game, and they do believe in Scripture, but they're, they're still more afraid of the world than they are of God. So we have to remind them that they're actually called to proclaim the truth. They're called to spread the good, good news. And that means preaching the, the gospel. Yeah. Can we sit on the sidelines on this issue? Can we merely say, 
oh, this is just a cultural war issue, something that will blow over and that actually what we just need to do is... Yeah, we do need to love people. But to love people, we need to be truthful to them and with them. And of course, we can't sit on the sidelines. No, this isn't just a cultural war. This is a spiritual war. This is a war between good and evil. This is a war for the very existence, for the very soul of Western society. And if we want to have a part in keeping it good and bringing it back to Christ, then we have to do something. We have to be explicit in our faith. We have to live our faith, but we also have to teach it and we have to proclaim it from the rooftops. Mm. Amen to that. And let me just end, I think, maybe with kind of a personal anecdote on this. You did this with your Oxford Union debate. Anybody that heard it can unapologetically say you preached the truth and you spoke boldly. Was there any apprehension about how <laughs> of you course, would be of course, I'm, I'm a fallen human being. Of course, I'm thinking, how is this going to go down? But then I'm reminded that it doesn't matter if because if they hate me, I know they hated him first. If they persecute me, I know that I'll be blessed because of it. And so I just return to the scriptures that I pray to the Holy Spirit to fill me um, with with guidance and to use me as His vessel. And that's all we can do. And if you know, in in the time and place, we might be hated in that union i was hated i could feel it i could see it. i could hear it however i did what i thought was right by god and it has bore plenty of fruit since so you know we may never know the fruit that we're bearing when we're, when we're speaking truth um but that's what we're asked to do that's what we're called to do well let me um share something with you because you often don't know what kind of fruit you're bearing in the present but i've also noticed as i have been bold enough to speak out on some of these issues that it has also, um, mm. while I've been afraid at certain times about how it would be perceived and if I'm communicating this effectively, am I doing, it's never about the truth of God's word, but it's am I doing my best yes. to communicate what Absolutely. his truth says yes. so that I'm not getting in the way. Um, but I've also found that when I've taken the time to push against um, those notions and face my fears and do it regardless of the repercussions because I know the truth matters more than what may happen to me. Um, I've also found that that people are strangely attracted to that because what I think, I, I think I said this earlier, but I think what that does in the midst of polarization and in the midst of sometimes this division that's happening as a result of us taking firm stands on things because of how far our culture has gotten away from Christian truth, what it actually does is it provides a clear pathway pe for people through the midst mm. of the craziness of culture to on-ramp onto the faith. And I think it's vitally important for us to be that for people. And I want to give you a for instance. So last night, right before this conversation, I received this message um, from a person that I do not know, uh, never met before in my life on, on social media. He said this, your post of Calvin Robinson is brilliant. I'm an American that has battled same-sex attraction for more than 40 years. My wife and I recently celebrated our 25th anniversary by God's mercy and grace. Now, he goes on to talk about another friend that he's been speaking to, and I'm going to go ahead and throw this in there because I think this is interesting. Um, and, and I think we need to be honest about this. He's been speaking to a friend and ministering to this friend about his same-sex attraction, and he goes to Timothy Keller's church in New York. And... There's been some question as to whether or not Tim has taken a firm enough stance on this issue himself. Um, I'll leave that to those in the uh, Twitter sphere to, to debate, but I'll just tell you he ended the conversation this way. I stumbled onto you tonight. Thanks so much for posting the truth. God bless you, brother. And all I did was bless what, or post what you said that night. 
And in the midst of it, there was a man that is still struggling and hopefully receiving victory over this, over this uh, same-sex attraction that heard the truth in a way that encouraged him to continue. That to is what it's all about. The number of people who've been in touch. And, you know, in that debate, I didn't say anything extraordinary. I didn't say anything novel or innovative. I just spoke what I saw in the scriptures. Uh, I read from Christ's words, St. Paul. I, I went back to Aquinas. I went back to the Book of Common Prayer and the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I just used the material that was already at hand and just mirrored it, parroted it. So nothing new, nothing, nothing in that was me. Um, so it, the fact that so many people have seen it as extraordinary, as uh, standing out, actually saddens me because it tells me that people aren't hearing the truth often enough. This should be the stuff that you're hearing in church every single Sunday. And for, for it to be so, right. so much of an event just means we, we've really lost our way as, as Christians and as a church. And it's time for us to bring that back. Or you have so much to share that I almost hate to only speak on this subject, but, um, but, that, but that conversation at Oxford thank Union you, was you. just I appreciate absolutely that. Out. It's, it's Honestly, it was one of the hardest things I've done, and it didn't feel good at the time. But after, what, it's been months now, I'm, st I'm still seeing the fruit that it bore. So it's, you know, these things are always worth doing. Yes. I mean, this guy's message yeah. last night was, I think, right on time. Um, and... And it brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. In 22 years of ministry, um, in mostly charismatic um, slash Pentecostal settings, um, so widely divergent in terms of kind of like they don't, they, they believe lots of different things. Um, so um, I, I can say that doing what I'm doing now on my podcast, speaking out about these cultural issues, helping people stay attuned to current events, I have seen more impact in doing that in two years than I have in 22 years oh, yeah. of traditional Christian ministry. So I don't know what your experience has been from the Oxford Union debate, but I can tell you for me, um, I know there are Christians yeah. that are squeamish about culture war. They can't but, afford to be. Um, yeah, they can't but, afford but to be squeamish. They're letting people down. It's spiritual neglect. It really is. I do. I agree. And I think we have. I think we have stayed away from polarizing topics because they are polarizing. And I think hopefully, I hope we're waking up to the reality that we can no longer do that anymore, that that passivity is not an option. And maybe maybe it never was. Um, maybe it was. Maybe in the past we were able to focus on other things because it wasn't demanded of us in that moment. But I can't help but wonder if that passivity in the past has brought us into the present. And it was always incumbent upon us to take firm stances on these things, whether they're popular or not, and to remind people of them as much as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And we failed in that duty. And rather, we've moved to encouraging the saints in Christian living rather than affirming the truths of I'm Christian I'm with you scripture. entirely. That is the problem, but at least we have a solution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, a good God with a, a holy word that uh, continually calls us back if we're willing to, to glance at it from time to time. Now, obviously, um, you have so much to say, not only on this issue, but on so many other issues. Um, and I want people to be able to receive as much as they can from you. So um, before we close, can help people know where they can find you, um, maybe even if they're in America, how they can Very good, yes. Your, um, I'm on calvinrobinson.com. All of my social medias are on there. They tend to be just at Calvin Robinson. Uh, I have a show on GB News at 7 p.m. on Saturdays, and that's also on YouTube on the GB News channel. It's called Calvin's Common Sense Crusade, where we look at current events from a faith perspective. Yeah, that's great. Now, I don't know your feelings about Thomas More, but uh, I will say that... Uh, 
we're not yet at the point where we're being beheaded for standing up and speaking for the truth. So it, the cost hasn't gotten that great. So let's do it more and more and more. And thank you for standing up for truth, regardless you, of the repercussions. God bless you. All right, guys, thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And most importantly, let's go with God. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>